Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is one of those people you may not have heard of, but will certainly have heard. John Altman is known as the Musician's Musician. He's won BAFTAs and Emmys, a gold badge of excellence for service to British music, a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Monaco Film Festival, and an honorary doctorate of music from the University of Sussex. He's worked on films such as Hear My Song, Funny Bones, Titanic, for which he wrote and produced all the period music, The Life of Brian, GoldenEye, for which he wrote the music for the classic tank chase scene, The Lost Empire, Little Voice, Vendetta, and Shall We Dance with Richard Gere and Jennifer Lopez. As an arranger, John has worked with the best. Diana Ross, George Michael, Bjork, Rod Stewart, Tom Jones, Tina Turner. I could go on. He has his own hand-picked London and LA big bands and quartets, and regularly gigs both sides of the Atlantic, having jammed with Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, and the late Amy Winehouse. He was Van Morrison's MD for years, and Hot Chocolate's MD and sax player, and he's responsible for classics by Alison Moyet, That Old Devil Called Love, George Michael, Kissing a Fool, and Bjork, It's Oh So Quiet, to name but a few. And there's more. In fact, it's all in his autobiography, Hidden Man, My Many Musical Lives. But I'll let John tell you about some of those as we discover the five things from his amazing life that he'd like to put in a time capsule. Here is the musician, arranger, conductor, composer, and much, much more, 
John Altman. Well, the first thing, believe it or not, is uh, something that anybody under the age of 40, 50 even, won't have a clue what I'm talking about. But it's a radiogram. I haven't a clue what you're talking about, John. No, I was going to say, for those of uh, younger disposition, I think every home had a radiogram. Miracle of miracles, you could get the radio, Mm. obviously the light program, the home service, the third program. If you were very lucky, you would get Radio Luxembourg, but uh, very rarely. And it also played 78 RPM records. And I was very lucky to grow up in a house where my mother's four brothers were well-known band leaders. And her youngest brother was the conductor at London Palladium from 1947 to the mid-50s. So he conducted Sinatra, Judy Garland, Danny Kaye, Jack Benny, the Marx Brothers, Bob Hope, Nat King Cole. I could go on forever. Yes. But these are the people I grew up with when I was small. And when you're three, four, five years old, obviously your life is influenced by what you see and what you hear around you. And the reason I picked the radiogram was that we had a vast collection of 78 RPM records, mainly from the swing era, which my uncles were all part of. And instead of being like a normal three-year-old and treading on them or making flower pots out of them or whatever one did in those days, I played them. And I don't actually remember my parents playing records. I think I found this by myself, put them on, learnt them off by heart, not as an exercise, but because I loved them, learnt the solos assuming that they were part of the record, not knowing any different, and had my musical education by the time I was six or seven by listening to Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman, all these wonderful records that I actually still have. I can still sing them note for note, including the solos. That being caught by a piece of music because it's around you all the time. I mean, your uncle playing at the Palladium. So whenever anybody came over from the States, they would always play the Palladium, wouldn't they? Oh, totally, yes. So he was there and they would send ahead their orchestrations? Yeah, they'd send over the music. Um, What I learned very early, obviously, was what each of them preferred to do. For example, Judy Garland had terrible stage fright and my uncle had to have a spotlight on him the whole time. Otherwise, she was too nervous to perform. And he would tell her what to do. Move forward now, go back, sit down on your stool... And he he had a little, I guess, a mouthpiece or a microphone or something. And if you see photos, which obviously there are a lot around, of that Palladium appearance, the spotlight is on her, but you also see my uncle in the pit with his baton raised. (laughs) And people would, I'm sure, be wondering, you know, what's so important about him? Why could we see him? But it was for her. Yeah, for her. And then, for example, Betty Hutton had the band on stage... And she used to kick him black and blue while while she did her act. <laughs> and the Marx Brothers and Danny Kaye, Chico would conduct the orchestra and Danny Kaye would conduct the orchestra. Yes. And we tend to forget now how big a star he was. He was probably the biggest draw of the time. Yeah, I remember my parents talking about going to see him at the Palladium. Yeah. And thinking they were astonishingly lucky and spending sort of a week's wages to get in. To get in. Well... 
if you can then imagine him sitting in my front room at four in the morning playing records and the neighbours complaining next day and saying, what was that ghastly noise at four kept me awake? <laughs> and my mother saying, well, I'm really sorry, you know, Danny Kay was round and Danny Kay? And you didn't tell us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> My God. Yeah, Little Mix all came round for tea. Yeah, or Ed Sheeran or someone like that, yeah. Yes, I know people where that's happened to them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's got a place in Suffolk. Suffolk, yeah. yep. And I, I know people have said, oh, we, we met him in the pub and he came round afterwards and then we sat there and he played the guitar and sang songs. Yeah. And you think, wow, amazing. Well, these people are all, all human and they have human interactions, you know, and yes. quite often they don't necessarily want to be having them with their peers. You know, they, they just want to keep normality going, however big yeah. they are, you know. And some like to live the lifestyle of, I think I'll move my dressing room five inches to the left because I can. Mm. And some just don't buy into any of that at all. They, they just carry on as normal. No, so your uncle worked with all those extraordinary stars from that time, and then you carried that on. Did you then train to go into that, or did you just pick it up from the family? Not at all. I mean, I, I didn't even take music O-level. <laughs> I picked up the saxophone when I was uh, just coming up to 13. My uncle brought one round and showed me the fingering. I already played the recorder, so I sort of knew the way to do it. And he brought the saxophone on a Friday... And I played a gig on Saturday. Oh, I can't God. imagine how awful it must have been. <laughs> but in those days, you know, we're talking about late 62, early 63, everyone wanted to be in a band. Mm. And if you played music, you know, your ambition was to join a group. And I did. I joined all the local groups, playing in three or four at once because nobody had a saxophone. No, It was like a sort of, oh you've got a saxophone, well, you better come and play with us. <laughs> and really, that's how I got myself into the business, was showing up places, jamming with people, and people would say, oh, that sounded nice, come next Friday. And I suddenly found myself working with all these people. But I was still going to university and studying English literature, mm. but I was making records. I could come up to London, I could go to the Marquee or Studio 51 or the 100 Club or Bunges or Cousins, and I'd just get up there and say, oh, can I play? Yeah, great, you know, on to the next club. Can I play? Yeah, no problem. Also around that time, sort of maybe a bit later in the 60s, everybody suddenly wanted a flautist, didn't they? And I was playing flute. There we are. That's why I started playing flute and clarinet, <laughs> because I thought if I play flute, I can do folk club gigs. And if I mm. play clarinet, I can do the Dixieland jazz gigs. In fact, the first records I made were on flute, which I haven't played since the early 70s. But in the mid-80s, I was the music producer for a show that you'll remember well called Friday Night Live with Harry mm. M. Field and Ben Elton. And I, I do remember it, yes. Yeah. Produced by Jeffrey Perkins, my friend. By Jeffrey, yes. And Jeff Posner. And Jeff Posner. So I was the music producer for that show. Were you? So every week, I didn't know who I'd get. You know, I'd, I'd turn up and they'd say, oh, it's Nils Lofgren this week. Oh, Slade, you know. And I got the Moody Blues. <laughs> and for some reason, the flute player with the Moody Blues couldn't play Nights in White Satin. And he kept messing it up. So I, I was quite friendly with Justin Hayward in those days. And I said to him, are we ever going to get this right? And he said, I doubt it. And I said, well, what should we do? And I, he said, well, you play the bloody thing then. 
And that was it. I wound up playing the flute on Nights in White Satin. He mimed. The problem with those things, if you're a musician and you didn't originate it, you've then got to repeat the performance that somebody gave yeah. 15 years earlier because it's so famous. If you know Nights in White Satin, you know the flute solo. That's it. And a great bone of contention with musicians has always been with the Rangers as well. You know, you, you put something into a record and it becomes part of the song. Like, mm -hmm. for example, you know, if you ask eight out of ten people to sing Baker Street, they'll sing the sax solo. If yes. you say Careless Whisper, they'll sing Steve Gregory's saxophone intro. If you say Tears of a Clown people will start singing that's not part of the song that's paul riser no. you know that's the arrangement so it's a very contentious area because if you actually went to a publisher and said i wrote that bit of the song you'd never work again people have tried though haven't they oh they certainly have the lines blur you know and often when i'm say i'm an arranger and cite a particular record they say, what did you do? And I say, well, I created the chord structure, I put in the key change, I did the counter melody, I did this. And they go, oh, so you wrote the song. I said, well, technically, no, I didn't write the song. You know, somebody strummed the guitar or played a piano and wrote the song and I embellished it and changed it and turned it into a record. But I'm not the writer of the song. No. And then you give up and you just say, yes, I did. I wrote the song. <laughs> just for peace of mind, really. Well, okay. Well, so I'm going to take you back to that radiogram. Yeah. I'm going to put a lovely radiogram into the time capsule for you. Thank you. There we are then. That's the first item. So what's your second item? Well, second item is a is slightly odd one. I, I moved house a couple of years ago and downsized. Somehow I kept every single scrap of paper and manuscript and ephemera that I'd ever had. So I had 50 years of ticket stubs and invitations and God knows what. Good Lord. Amongst all this, I found the original Monty Python headed notepaper on which I'd rough sketched how we were going to record Bright Side of Life. Wow. So <laughs> I'd like to take that as a, as a memory of how we did Bright Side of Life and what on earth I was doing at script meetings because I can't imagine why I would be sitting there in the room with all those incredibly talented people. Well, maybe because that's such an important part of that film, The Life of Brian. The fact that it finishes with that song, it's a very optimistic piece of music, isn't it? It is. I don't never quite worked out what they were trying to say there, but maybe it's summed up in the lines life's a bit of shit when you look at it. Yeah. And it is. So, you know, make the most of it while you can. The abiding memory that I have of the run-up was that they didn't know how to end the film. And what most people don't realise about the Python team was that they weren't a team. No. They were four or five groups of, of writers who were thrown together by Barry Took to do a TV series. Mm -hmm. So there was always sort of... I wouldn't say confrontation, but there was disagreement, particularly with Terry Jones and John Cleese, with Eric, because he worked on his own. But mm -hmm. anything any of them brought in, the others would go, oh, it's not quite right. And Eric decided that he would write a song and try it out. And he, I think he wrote two or three, and he played them, and there was very little enthusiasm. 
Terry Jones always said, oh, I hated that song, and I still do. <laughs> Michael said, well, I didn't, you know, it was all right. I didn't think much of it. And yeah. somehow it was decided that they'd give it a go. They were going off to Tunisia the following day, and he took it, Eric took it with him. We recorded it on the Friday, and I think he flew out the next day with mm. the recording. I decided that what we should do is a sort of Hollywood musical type thing because the structure of it sounded like a, an old Hollywood song. So I wrote a Hollywood-style arrangement for it. Again, never thinking that that was how the scene was going to turn out, that they were going to do a Busby Barclay spoof in the film, no. you know. And it just took off from there. It, it was extraordinary. It was... Um, I, don't, I don't know. It was, it was a, almost a once-in-a-lifetime thing that... that I think that must be, be, you have to describe it that way because it's extraordinary. Very few people remember the film now. It's not particularly a famous film. And yet this song from it yeah. is still everywhere. If you put that on, on a jukebox in a pub, yes. if you put it on at a certain time of night, people have had a few drinks, everybody will join in, which is extraordinary, isn't it? It is. I mean, Brian is still a wonderfully funny film. I, I saw it yeah. quite recently and I was laughing all the way through. The thing about the song is it's transcended where it came from and become, as you say, an anthem. So it can be on the opening of the Olympics, it can be at funerals, it can apply to all kinds of situations. Yes. It's had a life that I certainly wouldn't have known. The German and Danish fans sang it at the European Cup final. You know, not one British fan in the stadium. This is back in 1990. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was extraordinary, you know. And, and um, the original record was produced by George Harrison, who loved a string phrase that I wrote. And he insisted that that was featured and they took the whistling out. I, I did the whistling with Fred Tomlinson singers, but they took the whistle out at this one point for George's pet phrase to come through. <laughs> he kept it. He still had it on his uh, home jukebox, you know, at the end, which was I thought was lovely. Wow. I can see how it's become an iconic piece of music because it suits so many situations. Yep. You know, if you're a fan and your team are losing, it's a great song to sing. Oh, totally. That's what you sing when you're 3-0 down. But again, it would make you laugh. Well, yeah, I mean, and football crowds do have a great sense of humour. One of my other guests, David Baddiel, told me stories of being at England matches and suddenly everybody singing Three Lions. It's an amazing thing to have a piece of your music sung. Unbelievable. Thousands and thousands of people. Well, I, I had that with one of my commercials at one time. It drove everyone mad, which it was supposed to do. That was actually my brief. Write something that will drive everyone mad. And I did. And what was it? It was a thing called Sheila's Wheels. Oh, yeah. Which literally drove everyone bananas. And I wrote it to do that. That's the great thing, you know. Okay, well, I think that piece of paper must be worth quite a lot of money, you know, John. Well, uh, my friend Ray Russell went on Antiques Roadshow with a guitar that George Harrison gave him, and they valued it at £300,000. So, Good Lord. I'm wondering, but my Elvis demos that were going to be my pension, they're worth 15 quid, so... I'd, oh, no. Somewhere in between that, and I'd probably be happy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to very carefully take that piece of paper and put it into the time capsule for safekeeping. So that's two items. What's your third item? My third item does continue the comedy strain, but in an interesting way. One great thing that we were talking about before we started 
was the fact that the backstories to certain events and things that we've done are possibly even more interesting than the actual stories of <laughs> what they are and what happens. So if I said to you I would take a DVD box set of Hancock's Half Hours TV, you would, like most people, say, how wonderful, what a great thing to do. But my reasoning behind taking it is, is the, the interesting thing, I think. Okay. That is, my first agent was Tony Hancock's brother, Roger, who sounded exactly like him on the telephone. It was uncanny <laughs> and terrifying. And when I went to Los Angeles to do the first film that I scored in America after Hear My Song, Hear My Song was a huge hit in the States. Yes. And I started getting asked to write music for Hollywood movies, which was fantastic. So... Off I went to LA and I stayed in Roger Hancock condo in the valley. And the only thing in there, we again, we have to remember this is pre-internet, pre-cable, pre-everything. Yeah. All that was in there was NTSC copies of Hancock's Half Hours. And in those days, you couldn't buy them on video, let alone have them all at your disposal. And they weren't just the obvious ones. They weren't just the, the blood donor and the radio ham, but they were the ones with Kenneth Williams and Sid James. Wow. So basically, that was my entertainment for the evening when I finished work. Now, the film company gave me a PA to run errands, get me takeaway pizzas, bring me music, bring me whatever. Only in Hollywood, my PA had his own TV series and a blacked-out sports car with black windows <laughs> and several stalkers. Good Lord, who was it? So this is uh, no, nobody who'd be particularly well-known now, um, yeah. but his friends were particularly well-known. He, he ran around with what was known as the Brat Pack, ah. so... It would be River Phoenix and Corey Feldman and Johnny Depp, you know, all that crew, as it were. And I started screening Hancock's Half Hours. And they, none of them had ever heard of him because obviously he'd never really travelled to the US. No. They loved it. They absolutely adored it. <laughs> and I would get them coming round and saying, can we see a Hancock? And they would be quoting the blood down. A pint? That's nearly an armful. If you can imagine these, you know, like the person who created Buffy the Vampire Slayer and wrote all the episodes, you know, going, he's eating my wine gums. Have you forgotten the Magna Carta? Yes. Did she die in vain? Absolutely. <laughs> Galton and Simpson, wonderful. Brilliant stuff. I went to Ray Galton's 80th birthday party and I told him that I'd just done a library album of big band music every single title was a line from one of the Hancock, either from the rebel or from the blood donor or... And he, he was extremely underwhelmed by the news. He, he, he was easily underwhelmed. Yeah, easily he? underwhelmed, yes. But that's why if I put in Hancock, I'd have the triple threat. You know, I'd, I'd remember the great days of Hancock's half hour. I'd remember mm. the wonderful times of doing my first American movie and the bizarreness of having the, all these young superstars quoting lines of Hancock at me. Again, what may well have seemed like here today, gone tomorrow superstars. Yeah. And yet, look at them now. One film I went up for that I, I came in the last two, as it were, was uh, Austin Powers. And uh, I had a wonderful meeting with Mike Myers. And of course, all those inverted commas American comedians who are Canadian grew yes. up with British comedy. 
so Mike was, I, I mean, he was a fan of the Goons. He was a fan of uh, Terry Thomas, you know, whereas Americans might not have known who Spike Milligan was. Mike idolised him, you know, so... Yeah. And there is something about the Canadian influx into American comedy that has brought that element into it. That Britishness. Yeah. Well, all right, yes, okay. well, I'll give you the entire box set of Hancock and you can sit there and and I'm sure watching certain episodes you'll suddenly be thrown right back to River Phoenix. Yes. Saying, can I have another Coke? (laughs) (laughs) And meaning a drink. Absolutely. Okay. well, we've got two left. We have. We've got one that you love, one that you cherish, and uh, sadly, one that you want to get rid of. Right, I hope you're enjoying listening to John's Extraordinary Life. There's a lot more to come, but we have to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back after this intermission. Hot dogs are available in the foyer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with the multi-talented John Altman. Okay, let's discover what else he'd like in his time capsule. Well, the one I love would have to be a saxophone. It would have to be. Of course. You know, there's no way I could go anywhere without a saxophone. No. I remember many years later when my uncle, who we talked about earlier, had moved to L.A., because I was splitting my time between London and Los Angeles, I saw a lot of him. We would meet every week for lunch. And one day he said to me, have you given up playing yet? And I thought, strange question. I said, no, of course not. He said, you will. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, you'll find you're so busy that months will go by and you won't have touched your instrument. And after a while, it will get put in the cupboard or behind the sofa and that's the last you'll see of it. And immediately at that moment, I thought, right, I have to play. 
I can't not play. And I never played on any of my film scores or commercials. I think once I did. All the recording I did, no playing. All the movies I did, no playing. Because I think as soon as you start playing, your critical facility goes towards, could I do this better? Is that a good take? Was I in tune? And you've lost the focus on the main thing. So I had call of the greatest players in the world. Why would I then bring my saxophone in and try and do it when I could get a great British player or a great American player? Of course. And they would wipe the floor with it, you know, so... So how did you you find the time to play then? Did you just play on your own or did you just join bands? No, I, I made it. I started going out to jazz clubs again and with my friend Patrick Allen, who was uh, Michael Jackson's choreographer, we started Monday night session in London at a club called The Ten Room in uh, Air Street. And Monday nights were usually like two men and a dog. You know, nobody went anywhere on a Monday night. You know, we pleaded with our friends to come and they're, oh, we, we were there last week. You know, why would we come again? <laughs> and then my birthday week, I'll never forget this, is December... 99, Lionel Richie shows up and Shaka Khan shows up and they both get up and they sing. Oh, my word. Suddenly, that was it. We had The Roots, Will Smith, Eddie Griffin, Chris Tucker, Ja Rule, Sean Paul, Pharrell. In the audience were Amy Winehouse, Joss Stone. It's where Amy started. John Legend's first showcase we put on. Pharrell's first showcase we put on. I mean, it was extraordinary. Wow. And the audience... I'd come up in the 60s and 70s where you would go to somewhere like Speakeasy and you would see the Beatles and Hendrix and all these people. And we had the same. We had Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, Brad Pitt, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake. Not all on the same night, but I did introduce Spike Lee to Orlando Bloom. He'd never met him. (laughs) You know, it was wonderful. Yes. So did you sort of keep it a secret? Guest list only. Right. We ran the guest list. We would have the American Olympic team, Chelsea Football Club, Australian cricket team. Everybody would be in. Actors, TV personalities. It was wonderful. Rugby players, England's World Cup winning side, you know. So your uncle was completely wrong then? Yes. In fact, when he said it's going to go behind the sofa and then in a cupboard. And I, I really, I, I love playing, you know, and the, the great thing, it's very well documented. We have video, we have photos, we have articles. But the thing was, there were no, no paparazzi, ever. Somehow they didn't hear about it. You know, it, was, it ran from 99 till about 2005. And then we moved to the Pigalle. And the first four weeks, Prince came and performed. <laughs> he cherry-picked all the people to do his after shows at the O2, including me, which was very nice. So I, I got to play with Prince on the after show. You know, it's wonderful. That is wonderful. Yeah. There's an argument as to the fact that Prince is possibly the greatest live performer there's ever been. Oh, I, th- I think... Definitely up there. I mean, amongst the the golden greats, definitely. Yes, alongside Danny Kaye. Well, yeah. I mean, I I never saw Danny Kaye perform in in his heyday. I mean, I love the movies like The Court Jester, you know, is one of my favourite films. Yes. But from what my parents said and my uncle said, there was nobody to touch him, you know, and most of it was improvised. There is footage of it. Yeah. If you look on YouTube, you can find him doing it. You, know, you can. Taking over the orchestra and running the whole thing and conducting. Well, in fact, if you look on you, you'll, you'll see my uncle there as well, you know, <laughs> which is <laughs> great. Are. 
I don't think his film comedy has dated, but the live comedy seems to have dated quite considerably. Modern audiences looking at it would tend to look at it and go, well, don't quite see why this is funny, you know, (laughs) in the same way as Abbott and Costello aren't funny anymore. And yet the Marx Brothers are and Laurel and Hardy are. Yes, quite. It's very interesting. I, I was very lucky because not only did I do a film with Jerry Lewis, but he took to me for some bizarre reason. He was famously difficult, wasn't he? Famously difficult. But when we did Funny Bones, he sort of adopted me as the guy to tell jokes to and have a laugh with. And I got on incredibly well with him. You know, it was like one of my best mates. It was very strange because he was a complete pain to everyone else, I think. It's a great film, Funny Bones. It's one of the films I'm most proud of, definitely. Mm. Lovely. All right. Well, I'm going to polish up the saxophone for you. Thank you. Put it in a nice strong case and put it into the time capsule. Perfect. So there we are. That goes in. So there's the four things that you cherish. Yes. And there's one more thing. It's a story and it is probably the biggest name drop of all time. (laughs) I was living in Los Angeles and I got invited to a charity dinner at a house in Bel Air, which, as you know, is the schprauntsiest of the schprauntsy LA. Yes. So off I went to this house in LA, in Bel Air, that made Buckingham Palace look like a council flat. I mean, I've (laughs) never seen anything like it. I walked in through the front door and I was confronted by basically old Hollywood. It was just extraordinary. I mean, I, there's Joan Collins, there's Quincy Jones, there's Suzanne Summers, there's Don Rickles, who does a whole routine about me in the doorway, which I, I wish I'd been able to film. I sat at dinner with Mrs. Frank Sinatra on the left and Mrs. Gregory Peck on the right. Good Lord. Barbara Sinatra spiked my cranberry juice with tequila. (laughs) She said, that's no drink for a grown man, you know. (laughs) And, And eventually I just thought, I can't wait to get out of here and tell my friend in London what's going on. So I got in the car, got on the mobile phone, drove down the hill, turned onto the road. Suddenly the roads stopped. There's no road. And I'm going, what? This is very, very weird. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to have to get off the phone. I'm, I don't know what's going on. Got out of the car. It's pitch black, obviously, because it's midnight. Mm. Look around, suddenly realise I am on a horse trail. I'm not on the main road. And the horse trail has stopped. I'm on the side of a mountain in pitch darkness in my car. I've come down a sort of a ramp. Somehow yeah. I have to get back to that ramp and go up it. For the next hour, I'm edging the car back, thinking I'm going to go over the side, I'm going to need a helicopter, I don't know how I get out of here. Eventually, I get to the ramp. I then realise I can't get up the ramp because I can't (laughs) get any traction on the car to go up the ramp because if I try and go up, it's just going to roll backwards and I'm going to be over the side of the mountain. Terrifying. And then I'm thinking, well, be logical about this. This house is like Buckingham Palace. There's going to be security. There's a party going on. Somebody is going to be somewhere in the vicinity of this house. Yes. So I walk up the ramp, I look around, and I see a bloke with a walkie-talkie. And I go over to him and I say, excuse me. And he looks at me. (laughs) You know, this creature has emerged from the depths of God knows where. I said, "Um, 
I wonder if you can help me. I've driven my car down what appears to be a horse trail and I'm stuck at the bottom. And he looked at me and said, are you drunk? (laughs) No, I'm actually stone cold sober. So the guy says, wait a minute. He says, right, we've got to write one here. (laughs) So he was radioing in to somebody who was doing security in the house who then told everybody in the house that there's some maniac stuck on the horse trail. So the entire house is now coming to the window to, oh, no. to watch, you know. So could, can, I, can I be more embarrassed? So the second guy comes down. He said, wait up here. We'll sort this out. 45 minutes later, my car appears. <laughs> For the next two days, I was getting phone calls from people saying, I was at the party, you know, did you get out all right? Is your car all right? I, it, was, it was just so embarrassing. But what a great way to make a mark. Yeah, Mrs. Frank Sinatra spiked my cranberry juice. <laughs> it's yeah. wonderful. It's a good job she didn't spike it more, otherwise you would have gone straight over the edge. God, to this day, I have no idea how I did it because I literally was reversing along a dirt track on the side of a mountain for an hour. <laughs> I, uh, did you ever go back and look at it in the light? No. No, I don't believe no. you. I did that once. I was driving over what are called the Campsie Hills outside of Glasgow, uh-huh. a Scottish understatement. They're huge mountains, and it was in the middle of winter, and as we got to the top, it became very icy, and then we went over the top, and we started to slide. Oh, we, God. There's nothing we could do about it. And we crashed straight into a dry stone wall, which we knocked over, smashed the side of the car down. And then we walked down the mountain to where we were staying. And the next day, we went back to wait for the van to come and collect the car. And on this mountain, there was one dry stone wall, the one we'd hit. And it was clearly put there for a reason, because the other side of it was an 80-foot drop into a gully. <sighs> I didn't dare go back because I, I literally had pictures of a you know a helicopter winch. I still don't know how those guys got it to go up the hill, to be honest. Well, John, I don't blame you for putting that into the time capsule. It's gone. Gone. You'll never have to think about it again. And if you ever mention it to any of those people at the party, they'll say, I, I don't remember that. Yes. How lovely. Well, I would say to you that's the end, but I can't let you go without getting you to recount the story of the recording of It's Oh So Quiet with Bjork, which is one of my favourite songs, I have to say. Yeah. I've always loved it, but you actually arranged the whole of that song. I did indeed. And the recording session was booked from 10 in the morning till 1, which was the usual three-hour slot. Yeah. With a big band, 18-piece big band. And we sat in the studio, we ran down the song a couple of times to, you know, iron out any possible mistakes and get timings. And and then basically we were waiting, you know, and um, we waited and we waited and I said, let's take a break. And they came back from the break and we were still waiting and we were still waiting. <laughs> and I went into the producer and said, uh, is there any sign of Bjork? Oh, uh, she's lost her shoe. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't know what we do, but we're obviously not, <laughs> not going to do anything. Never going to get it. Never going to get, get anything. It, it reminded me of a session that I had booked with Malcolm McLaren, who uh, just didn't show up. Well, you could have recorded. Yeah, so literally, I mean, I never heard again, you know, no, don't even no. know what, what, what was going on. So you're on the verge of doing that with Bjork. Yeah. At 10 to 1, she came into the studio, you know, full of the joys of spring and said, OK, what's going on? What's the story? And I said, well, the story is we basically lose everyone in 10 minutes time. 
said, what, what do you mean? I thought we had them all day. I said, no, no, we haven't got them all day at all. Uh, 10 till 1, and it's 10 to 1. They're going. <laughs> so she said, right, we better get on with it then, hadn't we? I said, yeah, yeah. So she went into the vocal booth at Angel Studios. The rhythm section were in booths, and they had headphones with her vocal in them. Mm-hmm. The front line didn't have anything, I think. But all the horns and everything. All the horns. They might have had rhythm section in their headphones. I can't remember. But, of course, the rhythm section doesn't play on the quiet bits. No. So you're not really hearing anything, you know. You're, you're just seeing me drop my arms, and I'm watching her <laughs> in the box. And we went for a take. We didn't run through. We just said, right, put the light on, record. So this wasn't even like a test. It was go. Four minutes later, we've got the record. That was it. Wow. No overdubs, no revocal, nothing. What what you hear on that record is first take live her with the band. Good lord. Amazing. Not even just first take, first performance. First performance. First performance and first take. Unbelievable. That is amazing. I wonder if that's ever been done before, even going right back to when everything was recorded like that. Well, it it has that feeling of being a first take. That's the great thing about it. You hear it and you think there's an excitement about it that you couldn't get if you were doing it for the fifth time or or whatever. No. And I think we only ever did it once more. We did it on Children in Need. Sadly, she wouldn't even consider doing anything vaguely in that style ever again mm. because she was asked and she said, no, I don't, I, that was a one-off. I don't want to be put in that box. Yes, she didn't strike me as somebody who sort of uh, who chased fame and success. She did what she wanted to do. No, she did what she wanted to do, yes. She did some great stuff, though. Oh, it's wonderful. Great stuff. But I, I was very lucky in my sort of record days, as it were, because all the artists I work with have had a long longevity that to this day has, has gone on. So, you know, Rod Stewart, Tom Jones and Dinah Ross and Tina Turner and Barry White, George Michael, Simple Minds, Prefab Sprout, they're all still popular. You know, it's amazing. What an extraordinary career you've had, John. Uh, well, John, it's been really fascinating and lovely to talk to you. John, thank you so much. It's absolutely fantastic. My pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Altman. If you hadn't heard of John before, you have now. And once heard of, never forgotten. Many thanks to... um, whatever his name is. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to it on Acast or, of course, your own favourite podcast provider. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and maybe leave a short review. Thank you. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. That's me and my time capsule. The theme tune is by Pass the Peas Music and is available to stream on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. And there you have it, another episode done and dusted. If you'd like to find out more about my guest, you can always read about him in his autobiography, Hidden Man, My Many Musical Lives, published by Equinox. And if you'd like to find out more about me, then my autobiography will be out soon, entitled How to Make a Million Quid in a Week. Well, how else am I going to sell it? Bye. Bye. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.